to talk about the brief everyone i've told about the brief is dead i take my chances on the pick with sean lemmy sean Otley, and golden rosemary <laughs> gotta wow. keep it a little uh a little bluesy <laughs> i don't know what that was <laughs> but i liked it gotta have a little southern charm <laughs> Because we're talking about <laughs> a movie that partially takes place in the South, yes. Yeah, but by a famous Southern boy. Oh, yes, yes. John Grisham's first entry into the world of the pig. <laughs> Will there be more? I guess we'll find out soon. But first, we have to talk about Little Picks. And boys... It's time for me to talk about the Goyles, because the Marvels came out. And you know I'm not going to miss an opportunity to talk about, not talk about a, a Marvel, Marvel movie, movie or a Star Wars thing. No? So, for those of you keeping score at home, the Marvels is a sequel to Captain Marvel, Avengers Endgame, the WandaVision miniseries, Thor Love and Thunder, the Miss Marvel miniseries, and the Secret Invasion miniseries. That's six things that Mm -hmm. came out over the last five years and really weren't connected to each other. Um, And if you haven't watched all of them, I think you'll be able to follow this movie. But you won't get as much out of it. And that's a problem because I think the, the the reality is they made a movie that nobody cares about except for some diehards that aren't already like filtered out for being, um, you know, sexist and stuff. Because, <laughs> you know, there's still like a lot of people that like hate Brie Larson because mm-hmm. they themselves are bad people. Um, but... The Marvels right now actually has a higher uh, audience score on Rotten Tomatoes than it does a critic score. Um, so I think this is some a movie that is, is like so barely on people's radar that even the internet trolls didn't bother to show up to review bomb it on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it did open with, I think, the lowest first weekend for Marvel. Uh, although that was still the uh, top-grossing weekend in box office history for a movie directed by an African-American woman. So I guess you you can spin anything, right? Um, And then uh, it just had its second weekend, uh, and basically nobody watched it uh, this time. So I I think it's just going to go away. Probably not even make a hundred million dollars at the box office domestically, which is Oof. crazy. Because uh, yeah. I assume this costs like half a billion dollars to make. Probably, <laughs> See, I don't know. I didn't look at the number. Problem. They gotta make these a little cheaper. They could just make them like for fifty million dollars. 
We wouldn't be in this mess. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, um, they need to make it take place in some sort of quantum realm. And that ain't cheap. What are they going to do? Put these in the, the real world? Come on. Um, for what it's worth, only <laughs> the very... going to tell me it is in the real world <laughs> right <laughs> now. <laughs> only the very ending of the movie has to deal with quantum shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is entirely set in space. Except for okay. very briefly... They are. They go to Jersey City, and Louisiana. Um, the two most, you know, exciting places on Earth. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, even Ant Man: Quantum Mania. I didn't like hate it. I was just like, what's the point? <laughs> um, sure. This one's like, I think better than that. It's fun. It's funny. It's got a lot of great alien cat action, which you know I'm here for. Sure. I like this cast. Um, I feel like they are a little bit hamstrung because Captain Marvel is like so insanely powerful. And mm-hmm. I guess no one else is that powerful except for <laughs> Thanos and he's dead. And, um, and also Captain Marvel had like 30 years of adventures that I guess we just don't get to see because if you remember the first captain marvel movie was set in like 1993 or something and then she just yeah. came back for endgame which was set in 20 i think 2025 <laughs> and i presume we're still in like 2025 um so it's 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 just weird to have like missed out on that and also it's weird because uh, one of the characters, one of the Marvels, is played by Tiana Paris, um, who her character was a little kid in the first Captain Marvel, and now she's Tiana Paris, who's older than Brie Larson, but Brie Larson is still Brie Larson. So, like, I guess maybe Brie Larson's just immortal and doesn't age. I don't know. It, it's just it's weird for her to call her Aunt Carol in this. To me, it just feels off. But that's just superhero stuff, I guess. Um, but I, I mean, the 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 thing is, I guess, even outside of me not caring about multiverses and quantum bullshit, it felt like uh, in the heyday of Marvel movies, everything was either leading to something or was the culmination of something. And here we have, like, an actual, like, team-up movie. Like, this is... It's not on the same scale as, like, Captain America Civil War, but it is, like, a sequel that brings in multiple superheroes from multiple franchises and ties them all into one giant, you know, world-ending threat. And it and it just... It feels like, you know, just a thing that happened instead of an event. And... I think it's a problem that they've spent so much of the past um, three or four years post Endgame setting up characters and then not like going back to them for such a long time. Like, where's where's Shang Chi too? What what's that guy up to? You know. Mm-hmm. Um. So I guess what 
I walked away from the Marvels thinking is uh, the MCU is maybe even more fucked than I thought. <laughs> like maybe it's not just that I don't care about multiverses. Maybe it's that they they have planned some huge event movie that's going to come out in like 2030. And they think they can just like barely even tease at that for the 10 years between like Endgame and that. And I don't, I think the attrition rate is going to be way too high for that reality. Uh, especially when like the new plan to save it is like having Deadpool and 65 year old Wolverine and apparently 60 <laughs> year old Reed Richards all team up. It's gonna be so. I don't know. It's I anticlimactic's the wrong word, but I'm just. I think I think it's fucked, guys. I don't I don't yeah. know how they can get it back. Can you imagine anything that would get you guys back? Not, not doing it for so long that I'm like, oh, <laughs> I remember these. Um, yeah, it's been long enough. Yeah, I think it. it it would yeah just take like some sort of <laughs> respite from the <laughs> the superhero movies because it's like you know there was so many westerns for so long and then they went away but then people be like ah unforgiven i'll see that <laughs> uh so yeah i think that's what it takes it's just what it it, takes. not us not being oversaturated with superhero movies that it'll feel a little refreshing once like a good new one comes out uh <laughs> many years after the last big one well they're sort of trying it i guess because next year the only marvel movie is gonna be deadpool and that's really more of a fox movie than a marvel movie yeah, but also but. they're like going to be like, remember all the Fox X Men characters we love, and it's like, are we ever going to let go of this? Like, we can't <laughs> yeah. leave. Are we ever going to get new X Men? Are the people really clamoring to see like James Marsden again? Yeah, is that the Maybe best we can do? <laughs> <laughs> if so, that's pretty pathetic. I mean, people went wild for Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. I know, it's crazy how people are like, oh, I, I love him, even though no one likes those movies. That's like, that's uh, really it. Yeah. That that broke the whole thing, didn't it? When they were it's, like, we like Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. I mean, Spider-Man I liked now. him in that movie. And I, I didn't even see the second Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. They're <laughs> like, noticed. oh, shit. You know what? I've, this is, I feel like this is something that Fast and Furious kind of did where, where they're like, Gave us nostalgia that we thought we had, but we didn't. <laughs> and, yeah. and I guess that would be in, in the seventh one, where it's like, remember all the great memories? I'm like, oh, they were great memories. It's like, no, mo- most people weren't watching these anymore. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so we're looking at the past through rose-tinted glasses, or like whatever Cyclops glasses are that control his ocular beams. Uh, Ruby Quartz tinted Ruby glasses. Quartz, thanks, Sean. Uh... But yeah, it's it's that's what they need to do. They need to take a break. They need to just do the X Men and then just not even fucking mention anything else. Not even like, or if they do, it's just like a a casual little like joke. Like, like I fucking love how in like was that Spider Man two when they mentioned Doctor Strange and he's like perfect, but it's taken. And it's like Doctor Strange like exist. Like 
I used to love <laughs> shit like that. Or or in, was in Batman and Robin, he's like, this is why Superman works alone. That's <laughs> as much reference as I want to anything else outside of X-Men. That's my That would be my vision. But if they're not going to fucking do that. They're going to have the Fantastic Four and, like, Hulk and, like, Moon Knight introduce the X-Men. <laughs> Yeah, but I, my thing is, like, why haven't they already, like, Rogue is an integral part of Captain Marvel's story. So, like, why isn't Rogue in this movie? I mean, yeah, that's why, that's why they're fucking up. Because they gotta bring back Anna Paquin, I guess. They're off-road. They're, they're not following a roadmap anymore. They're falling into the problems that Star Wars had beginning with Force Awakens. By the way, unrelated to this, yeah, there is a hot scoop rumor about the Jonathan Majors situation that for me made it all make sense to me. Okay. The rumor is that when Jonathan Majors signed with Marvel because he knew Kang was a character that could have multiversal variants, he put a clause in his contract that was all the variants get to be played by Jonathan Majors. (laughs) Uh-huh. So so if that's in his contract, then Marvel can't recast the part. Uh-huh. Unless presumably something like Jonathan Majors gets convicted in a court of law. Yeah. <laughs> so I that's my new like all oh, this all makes sense theory is that they need Jonathan Majors to actually face l- real legal consequences before they can <laughs> fire him and recast the part. Oh, so you feel like he's kind of holding like the Marvel franchise hostage right now. Yeah, exactly. Like they can't move forward with all the Kang stuff they have planned mm. with a new actor because so, Okay, that makes a little sense. So they kind of just have to fill it with whatever they whatever projects they can. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's me. What little picks do y'all have? Um, I have a movie. Oh, well, I've seen some good movies okay. lately. Uh, yeah, but the one that has stuck with me is uh, the Holdovers, the the new Alexander Payne movie starring Paul Giamatti. Uh, the reteaming of them, you know, like twenty years after Sideways, yeah. uh, and also after Alexander Payne's last movie was not so well received. I didn't even see it. Uh, Downsizing. But I have... Downsizing, by the way, is on my short list for picks in the future. (laughs) I mean, I'd like to see it at some point, just because I've seen all of his other movies and liked all of his other movies. Uh, But even that one, I just... I don't know. I just didn't have the time. I guess it also, like, came out around, I think, Oscar season, and it was just like, well, if it's not that good... Who cares? Uh, but this movie's good. Man. Yeah. Um, and this is, I mean, it's definitely like him returning to his sweet spot as as far as like subject matter since uh, it is about um, a teacher. And uh, I think Paul Giamatti played a college teacher in Sideways. Here he's yeah. like a teacher at a private boys prep school. Um, and then, of course, Alexander Payne also did Election, which takes place at a high school. Um, but is he grumpy? 
He's very grumpy, actually. Oh, I would grumpy. say maybe grumpier than in Sideways. Um, definitely a, like a slightly different kind of character, sort of like a more, um, I don't know, like more of a loner type of professor who's just like a little like angry at the world like he's <laughs> in the first scene he's just like giving out all like d's and c's and f's to all the students um because his thing is like he's teaching these very like rich prep school kids and he like is supposed to kind of be grooming them to go to like ivy league schools but he's just like you you bums gotta earn it like just because your dads are rich doesn't mean you get to be handed everything in life. Uh, and that's nice. an, an interesting dynamic. Uh, and, Why do you take the job in the first place, though? Uh, it's explained later in the movie. <laughs> yeah, he's just ended up as a teacher. Uh, again, feels kind of like election <laughs> sideways territory. Uh, but the thing I like about this one is... It's a it's a Christmas movie, and it's the type of Christmas movie uh, I'm a sucker for because um, it's like a misfits who are alone on Christmas, like just hanging out, trying to make the best of their situation. Um, like unaccompanied minors. Yeah. Also, like kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, think it's a I, good movie, though, right? No, probably not. I guess I was more thinking like one of my favorite. Uh, movies to watch around Christmas. That's not like a super Christmassy movie, but is The Apartment, which is like kind of about <clears throat> lonely people on Christmas. Because, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Paul Giamatti plays this uh, this high school professor who's stuck at the prep school, um, kind of looking o- after the kids who who weren't able to go home like they're the holdovers but then most of them end up like going to like some ski resort with one of the kids dads uh and then he just ends up um hanging out with just this one specific kid who has like a troubled family life um wasn't really familiar with the the young actor he doesn't even have a wikipedia page dominic sessa He's pretty good in it, though. Um, so it's mostly just him, this kid, and uh, also um, like this cafeteria worker played by Divine Joy Randolph, who I first became aware of on the TV show version of High Fidelity that only lasted a season. Oh, yeah. She was playing like the Jack Black character. Um, but here, her character's like a little more somber because she is reeling from her son who went to the um school like he he enlisted in the army and and died in vietnam so her story's a little (laughs) a little heavy but it's also pretty funny in parts i feel like a lot of alexander payne's movies have like one scene where the movie like just like heightens into almost like farce (laughs) because some one insane thing happens to a character and there's one scene like that (laughs) that's like both kind of like gruesome but uh, really funny at the same time um Hmm. 
And so it's just like got that nice mix of like humor and, uh, you know, a bittersweet quality, but also like a little, I would say, warmer than Alexander Payne's movies often are because I think the criticism sometimes with him is that he's a little too mean to his characters. But I don't, I didn't really get as much of the vibe here. I felt like he, you know, <laughs> that he cared about all the characters in this movie a lot. Um, it also feels like it should have been based on a book or something because it's like set in the 70s in the, you know, like academic world. But I guess it's just original screenplay written by, uh, David Hemmingson, who seems like he was mostly like a TV sitcom writer for a, a bunch of different like network comedy shows. So, Colin, the big question. Yep. In your Alexander Payne power rankings, is this top three? Oh, top three. I think so. Yeah, I think I would say that. I guess I put it up there with Sideways and Election. I think I put it a little bit above uh, Nebraska. So that's but it's that's about, my favorite. I would, I would, yeah, I mean, I, I like it about the same maybe as Nebraska. I guess it's close for me on those two. Okay, good enough. Yeah. Downsizing, which I guess now is the scene, but we could just we know it's at the bottom. We could assume it's last, but you know. Who knows? Put second from the bottom. Is he? Is there something I'm forgetting? Did he direct some secret piece of shit somewhere? I don't think he did. No, not I really. Mean, yeah, I'm looking at it now. I'm not like I'm not like passionate about about Schmidt. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, like I, I like it. I like it. I mean, I like my it. Second to last, uh, uh, last big movie I haven't seen. Yeah. Uh, not because I dislike it, just because I just I wasn't as interested. Hmm. And then, I mean, I also, I don't, I feel like Citizen Ruth is pretty good for, like, a debut movie. Yeah, it's good. But it's got to yeah. fit somewhere on the list. You know? Yeah. You can't put it above <laughs> election. The mm-hmm. Citizen Ruth V about Schmidt, that's an interesting battle that, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, pretty good filmography. Yeah. I wish he made more movies, but oh well. Um, all these uh, movie guys over here. What is this? The movie club? Hey, it's, it's, it's movie season. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I think I'm going to have to bring us. That's rich. You accusing us of being the movie guys. <laughs> well, I'm going to. I would love to join you, but I'm going to be mm-hmm. on the outside looking in because I'm a, I'm a book boy ah, this week. Ooh. A bookie wook. <laughs> A bookie wook, as my close friend Malcolm McDowell would say. Probably. <laughs> Dual threat Malcolm McDowell, and he's a great actor and also my friend. Um, Good I'm, friend. I'm going to go with the airplane book. Oh, I don't remember what it's called. It's um, uh-huh. it's probably like, surely don't, you know, the line of the movie. Surely you can't be serious. I think that's the title. The, 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 the new book by Zaz, the Zucker Brothers, and Jim Abrams. Um, about how they made Airplane. And I listened to the audiobook, which is great. It's only seven hours. So it was kind of just like listening to two long podcasts on, on different work days because it, it's very conversational. They'll, they'll often go back and forth and talk to each other. It's weird. Like, I would love to see how it was written. 
because it seems mm-hmm. so tailor made for uh, for audiobook. You know, especially because it has interviews with people like Jimmy Kimmel and like Molly Shannon and Bill Hader. Um, so is it? So it's just written like a straightforward nonfiction, like it's not like a an oral history. Mm, I mean, I don't. I mean, I guess it's kind of like an. No, I mean, it's kind of. A, it's, I'd say it's mostly like the nonfiction than them reading their story. But I feel like they wrote it, in, like I said, in a very conversational way because they're three guys. They're a three-man team. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting part of their story, too, is uh, I'll just jump around here. Um, but, like, there's a part where I guess there had never been a movie directed by three people when they made airplanes. <laughs> so the, the, the DGA was like, fuck no, you can't do this. So there is even a point where Jerry Zucker legally changed his name to Jerry... Like Zucker, Jim Abrahams, David Zucker. Like he changed his name so that it could it'd be their whole names. <laughs> but eventually they uh, they battled out with the studio and they won that. But what's so just so great about this story is like these are just three guys from Wisconsin who had no connection to Hollywood. It's such it's like hmm. you get so sick these days, all these fucking nepo babies crawling out of the loom. <laughs> It's so inspiring to hear a story about just three guys couldn't be further from, you know, the land where movies are made who, like, started getting interested in, like, comedy and started making, like, their own little short films and then started the Kentucky Fried Theater comedy group and then moved that group to L.A. and had a theater where they'd perform and invite people and eventually that got them, you know, funding to make a, a short and then that became... A movie, Kentucky Fried movie, and then just hearing them, you know, take that to airplane, and just hearing them talk about like how they conceive certain jokes or just how they even work on set, which I've always been interested in. It, it kind of seems like Jim Abraham is like more of a producer type, and then Jerry Zucker's working with the actors, and then David Zucker's kind of being on like a more technical side of things. Uh, and but yeah, these guys still seem like they're really great friends too. Even though David Zucker, uh, bad politics, <laughs> which is a fucking shame because the guy is still incredibly funny. He has <laughs> he made some pretty dark OJ jokes in the book that I was shocked. Like he has some joke about uh, like oh when he was talking, he briefly talked about working with him on the Naked Gun movies because they talked about some of the stuff right. they did after right. playing. And he's like. You know, OJ's uh, acting is a lot like his murdering. Like, you know, he gets away with it, but no one really believes it. (laughs) And he's like, "Uh, but, you know, I don't know. I haven't seen him since the rap party when I gave him a set of knives as a gift. It's it's so fucked up, but it's they're still very funny. They're still very sharp. Um, You know, I wish they'd they'd done more, but it kind of sounds like they used so many other ideas in Airplane and then Top Secret... um, was was a pretty was kind of a dud for them at the box office, even though it's, it is a funny movie. And then Ruthless People, uh, and then they just kind of spread out and started doing their own things. And there's a lot of, I mean, obviously Naked Gun, uh, Hot Shots. Go, I don't know where Ghost fits in all of that, but that's a good movie <laughs> for different reasons. Uh, and it's just, it's fun to hear him like talk about meeting the actors and giving Peter Graves a script, and he'd be like, oh my god, I'm a pedophile, I can't do this. <laughs> but then them convincing him uh, and hearing a lot of these you know like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar talking about his experience making it and 
all these people. Yeah, it's great. It's super fun. If you love Airplane, you'll love this book. And if you love, like, just kind of 70s, 80s comedy. Like, I was kind of hoping, like, oh, man, I, I, I want to find another book like this. But, like, what, what am I going to do? Get that book about Caddyshack? I don't even like Caddyshack. <laughs> I would read, like, a good, if there's a good book about Ghostbusters, you know, even though the Ghostbusters <laughs> fandom is so unbelievably toxic. <laughs> but it's tough because, like, there, well, there really only is one airplane. Yeah, I bet. I mean, I feel like yeah. you already recommended a book in a similar vein. I did uh, that the, that wild and crazy guys book. Yeah, seems like it's in the same. Yeah, it it, it definitely <laughs> arena. is arena. Um, yeah. You know, someone should if this doesn't already exist, someone should do a, a good book about uh, Holy Grail. I bet that would be a great book. I mean, there's already that great Monty Python documentary series from a decade ago, but mm-hmm. I, I'd read a book about that. I just I like to hear the book books about the making of one movie. You know, yeah. Every little thing that could have gone wrong and every little thing that made it happen and made it successful. You know, and then I watched um, Airplane right after and it was great. It's still great. You unlocked a memory for me. Yeah. Do you remember there's a family guy throwaway joke about a novelization of Caddyshack? Yeah, yeah, I do. That was good. Because it's like Brian reading the sound effects of the of like no yeah. it's him reading the chip because Chevy Chase is making the na 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 when he's hitting them he's just reading that that yeah. was good I might still read that book I'm sure you know I bet the book is probably more interesting than the movie it's like that uh like that was that a Siskel and Ebert joke about you know well what's more interesting the movie what would be more interesting the movie or like the actors who made the movie eating lunch and if it's them eating lunch then you've made a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> something like that um, but yeah definitely check it out or if you're looking for a last minute gift for somebody <laughs> airplane book can't go wrong it's it's a, it's, a, it's a breezy if it's 7 hours I assume that's that's gotta be like less than 300 pages right maybe 3 I don't know it's gotta be short uh, it says sure. online that it's uh, 352 pages damn well I just but... fucking cruised through that I mean it's easy when you're just maybe listening to it. Maybe it's got a lot of maybe it's got a lot of pictures in it. I don't know. It could have. That's always weird when you when you read not or listen to an audiobook and you're like, I'm missing some imagery, I think. Something. Yeah. <laughs> um I always hoped that someday I, we've talked about this before, that we would read The Bonfire of the Vanities. Yeah. Then watch The Bonfire of the Vanities. <laughs> then read The Devil's Candy about all the controversies that happened on the set of Bonfires of the Vanities. It's a great idea, mm. and I held off on watching the movie just in case we ever somehow find a reason to, or just get the motivation to do something like that. I don't think it's a super sh- I don't think it's a long book. It's probably like a... Oh, I don't know, actually. Is that is The Bonfire of the Vanities a long book? It might be long. I don't know. <laughs> Can't roll it out. How long is the? Uh, here, let me look. I want to look at how long the audiobook is. Though I find I have trouble listening to fiction audiobooks sometimes. Uh, nonfiction's easier for some reason. Twenty-seven mm. hours long on it's a little audiobook. Long. Uh, it looks like it's six hundred ninety pages. Yeah, it's not. Ooh, that's that is a long book. <laughs> we yeah. could do it, guys. We're grown-ups. Mm, barely. We could do that, or we could just read the Planet of the Apes book. Ready for new (laughs) apes movie. (laughs) Lots to get ready for. I hope someone prepares a brief for me so that I... I I got got nothing, guys. We got to talk about the Pelican brief. It's 
a movie released in 1993, directed by Alan J. Pakula. Uh, there's a documentary about him out this year. Maybe that could have been my segue. Did anyone see that? I didn't even know it existed until right now. A documentary about him? Yeah, it's called Going for Truth. Going for Truth. He's Googling it. He's Googling it. It says, I see 2019. 2019, but it was just released in 2023, perhaps? Uh, Maybe. Or Wikipedia just lied to me, and Amazon Prime Video just lied to no, me. No, I think you're right. Maybe anyway. maybe it was finished and like screened once and it wasn't. I think it is new. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, yeah. If you've got an hour 45, you can learn about Alan J. Pakula. He seems like an interesting guy to me. Uh, definitely a filmography that I would like to explore more. Uh, the most interesting thing I found out about this gentleman is that he actually began his career working in animation and then transitioned over to being a producer. Uh, he worked with the director Robert Mulligan in the 50s and 60s, uh, including being a producer on To Kill a Mockingbird, which got him his first Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. That's got to be pretty exciting, right, to get that before you've even directed your first movie? <laughs> um, his first movie, by the way, was The Sterile Cuckoo. <laughs> uh, that's a great title. 1969 movie starring Liza Minnelli. This guy loves his birds, huh? He sure does. Um, I didn't think about pelicans, that. mockingbirds. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I love that the Pelican Brief does open with footage of pelicans. Like, yeah, there's just the pelican. In case people who had no idea what they're getting into. You could do the little uh, Leonardo DiCaprio point at the screen. Yeah, there's the there pelican, and then they were part of the plot too. That's solid stuff. Yeah. Um. He's probably best known for his Paranoia trilogy, uh, of which I've heard of two of the movies. The first one is Clute. Clute with a K. I don't know much about it. Uh, Donald Sutherland. I always think about picking it for uh, Criterion Month, but then I'm just like, "Ah, I got too many American movies. I can't pick Clute. (laughs) Maybe next year. Um, it also stars Jane Fonda as a call girl, uh, and she got herself an Oscar for that performance. Get it, um, girl. In 1974, he directed The Parallax View, uh, which is definitely the next Pakula I'm going to watch. Uh, it's a just like a, a movie about political assassinations and stars Warren Beatty. Is that it the like Space Needle one? Yeah. This yeah. is the Space Needle Nice. Is that where you can uh, see the parallax? I don't know. You get a great view of the parallax, or what? What the fuck is a parallax, guys? I don't know. I've, I've heard there's like a pretty like psychedelic sequence. The effect movies, whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. Oh, I, I think I know what you know. Like when you look at something, but then you kind of turn, and it's like. Hey, that's not three-dimensional. That's two-dimensional. <laughs> Fucking parallax over here. In video games, parallax is like... You know how in like Mario levels, there'll be like a mountain like way in the background that like barely moves? Yeah. And there'll be like some hills that like move a little bit. And then it's like whatever you're running in, like right in front of, and that's moving like a lot. Uh-huh. So like they all move at like different speeds. I think they call that parallax in video games. Mm. Maybe it's the same thing. Some So it's some sort of visual phenomenon with 
shapes and whatnot. Yeah, but also just sounds super cool. It sounds really cool. It sounds super smart. <laughs> Alan Pakul must be really smart. I bet he is. Um, he also directed uh, the third Paranoia Trilogy movie, uh, All the President's Men, which I think everyone's seen. I have, yeah. In the world. Uh, it's so good. It's required. Probably the other movies to talk about. Sophie's Choice. Mm-hmm. He did that one. Got a uh, screenplay nom for that one. Uh, so that's that's his legacy. Three Oscar nominations. Uh, no wins. But uh, screenplay, director, and best picture. Big three. Uh, also did Presumed Innocent. Uh, probably future pick The Devil's Own. Starring Harrison Ford and Brad Pitt. <laughs> Why is that probably? Just because oh. it seems middling enough to like, yeah, we'll get around. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's got some guys we know. Some guys we know, but like no one talks about it. But it was probably like number one the weekend it came out for some reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not in a hurry to pick it, but it will, we'll probably get to it eventually. Um, and then tragically... Uh, <laughs> Alan J. Pakula died in 1998 um, in a very, like, final destination situation. Oh, my God. Go on. Uh, It says he was driving on the Long Island Expressway in Melville, New York, when a driver in front of him struck a metal pipe, causing it to crash through his windshield, striking him in the head. Oh, that's horrible. His car swerved off the road and into a fence. He was taken to North Shore University Hospital, where he was pronounced dead. He was only 70. That sucks. Yeah, it seems like you still keep him busy, too. Yeah, and we're actually pretty close to the anniversary of his death. The 25th anniversary of his death was yesterday. Wow. uh, November 19th. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I I think uh, based on the Pelican brief and and all the President's Men, I'm definitely interested in him as a director. Uh, I'm going to check out more. And I have been checking out more of the other big creative uh, on this movie, which is John Grisham. I'll say, I'll say. Um, so, uh, John Grisham is from uh, South Haven, Mississippi, which is a suburb of Memphis, Tennessee, which probably explains why Memphis is in so many of his movies. Um, it also sounds like he has kind of a, like a, a chip on his shoulder about how the South is portrayed, which I'm, I've not been helping. <laughs> None of us are. And um, we don't care, really. <laughs> but to be fair, he sounds like a real one. Um, he has a, he's a board member on the Innocence Project, which campaigns to free people using DNA evidence. Mm. Uh, he opposes capital punishment. He believes that prison rates in the United States are excessive and that the justice system is, is fucked up. Go off, uh, kid. And he even was one of uh, 60... Uh, notable figures who signed a, lit- a letter in 2015 asking the state of Mississippi to change its flag to not be the Confederate flag. Um, so that that's pretty cool. I was pretty stoked to find out all that. Uh, in case you're wondering what his like fascination with the law is, uh, it sounds like he worked like some odd jobs and had some bad experiences, like being in the blue collar. Uh, realm while he was growing up and so he really applied himself in college he ended up transferring to like three different colleges before he got um a degree in accounting um and then he went on to the university of mississippi school of law where he 
intended to be a tax lawyer, uh, but shifted his interests to civil litigation. Uh, and then he went into law practice for about a decade uh, before running for the Mississippi House of Representatives, where he served uh, as a Democrat from 1983 to 1990. Yeah. Uh, so I had no idea he was also an elected official. <laughs> uh, also another badass thing about him, uh, he, uh, he tried his last case, uh, what was the year? Uh, in 1996, like well after having retired from the law, <laughs> wow. because he had he had like honored a commitment to the family to uh, to to see that one case through. So he came back and mm. argued his client's case and earned them an award of six hundred eighty three thousand dollars, the biggest verdict of his whole career. Wow! Like, where's that movie? Well, now he was an expert. Wonder how yeah. long he kept his law license. Yeah, well, at least as as late as 1996. Um, while he was uh, a lawyer, he uh, in 1984 had an experience um, listening in on another case. It wasn't even his own case, where he um, heard a defendant give testimony that was so moving to him and the rest of the jury. Um. That, that he felt like he wished like he had brought a gun to avenge this this person testifying um, and so I, I guess he realized the the rage and the power of of testimony and that inspired him to write a time to kill his, his first book uh, which was passed on by 28 different publishers <laughs> before it finally got a limited 5,000 copy printing from uh, Winewood Press in 1988, so four years after he heard that story. And the day he published it, he began working on his second novel, The Firm. Uh, and that's the one that turned out to be a huge hit. It was a New York Times bestseller for almost a whole year, uh, the seventh best-selling book of 1991, and then just kicked off him being the best-selling author like every year for uh, two decades. Um, it's it's bonkers the hold he had on the American public through the 2000s um, and not just with legal thrillers right he also branched out to Christmas and baseball and I guess is any any sort of southern interest that, uh, that he had barbecue probably he's probably got one great barbecue novel Bird watching thriller. Um, <laughs> yeah, it sounds good, right? <laughs> it sounds great. Yeah. I just like to imagine it. Um, uh, the movies started getting made out of his books, and those um, were pretty bonkers, too. So The Firm was the first adaptation that came out. That was made in, uh, or released in, uh, made in 92, released in 93, uh, which is also the same year the Pelican Brief was released, um, which is also the same year Philadelphia was released. So, t- dual God. Uh, America, Denzel America Washington. Is just going to court. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, those all did well. So, he got like, 
an unprecedented $2.25 million for the rights to the client, which was then followed by an unprecedented $3.75 million for the rights to the chamber, which was bought before the book was even released. Damn, dude. Which was then beat by an unprecedented $6 million for the rights to A Time to Kill, that book that only had 5,000 copies back in the early 90s. Um, interesting thing there is he, he had a contingency in that contract that Joel Schumacher had to be the one to direct it because he liked the client so much, I wow. guess. Wow. And uh, for those of you wondering, he says it takes him about six months to write a, bu- write a whole book, so... Fuck that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty good. That's like Stephen King fast. Yeah. Um, he's still kicking around. He's still writing books. Seems like the craze has died down a, a, a fair bit because we get dumber movies now. I remember um, when I was working at a bookstore, he was writing like these like teen lawyer books. They're like young adult. <laughs> yeah. So I read about that, and it's it's basically what you'd expect. He he had kids, and he's like, I should write things for kids because kids that's love how this lawyer works. books. Yeah, <laughs> but he also is writing about Christmas and baseball, so you you never know. Although he tries to get out one legal thriller a year, and then he'll do something else. So he's still doing those. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess just the, these kinds of movies just aren't really popular anymore so there's not really any need to keep making them um yeah i guess who's that other guy michael connelly he has like the lincoln lawyer books he has like some other <laughs> i think people i don't know i don't think that was a hit though i mean people liked it but it wasn't a hit yeah you just you just these don't make money like they used to like i think i was looking it up and the firm and pelican brief were both in the top 10 yeah for that year so it's just like People were paying the big bucks to see these movies. It's kind of sad that that's not really uh, how it works anymore. Yeah, I was trying to figure out why that is. Um, why everyone became theory? babies? <laughs> yeah. Well, my theory for that is because Hollywood shifted to uh, making movies for the world instead of for America. Oh, yeah. Which meant it had to be movies that can be dubbed into a bunch of languages and not have a ton of like cultural aspects to it, and especially these. Like, I think part of the appeal is getting to like, ha- you know, have that access to the social elite. Yeah, um, I think that's been my awakening with these John Grisham stories. Is they're not really like courtroom legal thrillers. Like, that's not a big part of any of the ones I've seen so far. Um, there, it's more just about um, using that like social status to just tell conspiracy stories. And yeah, I think they use yeah. that level of of high society and and sort of uh, the the thrill of getting access to that. Uh, and he couples that with with um, just complicated interwoven stories and compelling characters that all have names that are pretty cool i don't know if anyone was taking notes of all the all the character names but they're great in this darby um, shaw gray yeah. grantham gavin Verheck, Verheek. i didn't remember how it sounded the stupid john Hurd guy 
Did any of these characters? Do any of these characters have like? I feel like the thing that John Grisham likes to do is like this is the such and such trilogy. Like this character, tri- like the guy from the firm, Tom Cruise character has like a trilogy of books. Oh really? I'm just wondering. Like, is there like if this is the Gray Grantham trilogy? <laughs> Must not. It seems be. like he would be the one. Yeah. I guess you could be. You could do the Darby Shaw. Well, let's take a look at that old bibliography. Yeah, because it's like broken up as like the Jake Brigant series, the Rogue Lawyer series, the Whistler series. <laughs> yeah, Mitch McDeer is the guy from The Firm. Only two books, actually. The Firm and then one from this year called The Exchange. Uh, no, Pelican Brief, standalone. Most of these are standalones. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about this cast. I think we got to start with Gray. Denzel Washington, Gray Grantham. Is this the peak of Denzel's powers or is this is this the year that Denzel or is he already like I'm I'm the guy. I'm the the big the adults love to come see the Denzel movies. <laughs> when does that happen? I think it was definitely around the time that he was kind of coming into his own as a star. When, um, yeah. Yeah, that seems about right. When he did Malcolm X done, come out? Was that after? That was the year before. That okay. was 92. Um, I mean, I guess he had won the Oscar for Glory. That's I right. guess that was probably kind of the moment that people were like, wow, this guy's, this guy's going places. <laughs> Even though that That's was awesome a, a supporting role, but I think maybe it like proved that he could be a leading man. And so, like, yeah, he's doing the Spike Lee movies, and then yeah, did this and Philadelphia the same year, and much to about nothing, where he is so hot. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and Keanu Reeves plays his evil brother. <laughs> Um, oh man, we yeah. just skipped right over Ricochet. I mean, that's the that's the peak. Well, Ricochet is secretly an awesome his, movie. His best movie, which, <laughs> which uh, it's so fun. Is Ricochet Denzel's best movie though? Oh yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. <laughs> um, I do love that there is a Ricochet reunion in this movie. <laughs> In the Pelican Brief, because right. John Lithgow That's shows right. up, John Lithgow. I didn't think and about he that. plays the villain in uh, in Ricochet. That's, that's one of the most memorable lines in any movie for me. <laughs> I think you should say it, Colin. You uh, well, okay, so he's in prison, and uh, he's like, he's got a parole hearing coming up and the guard comes in he's like your parole hearing's coming up i hope you remember to floss and he says i was last night with your wife's pubic hair oh god yeah <laughs> classic <laughs> god it's so gross i just love it when a movie it's like gross in a way that you never even thought about. Like has something you would have never conceived of using pubic hair to floss your teeth. It's like, got a sick mind comes up with that. Yeah, dude. The writer of Ricochet, apparently. Yeah, dude's a sicko. Yep. Oh, that's that's great. That the guy who wrote Ricochet also wrote Commando. 
Oh, Ilwa D'Souza. S- Stephen E. D'Souza. Yeah, Die Hard, Running Man. Um, he yeah, knows man. he knows how to write a a good one liner. Apparently, that is didn't he like write Street Fighter in like a weekend or something? <laughs> There's like some some crazy story about C D C E D C Z like writing it in like the like unfathomably quick time. Like <laughs> I can't remember. Like he had to. I was just something crazy. And that's why it's so good. Yeah. Uh, also, he's from Philadelphia, and he was born November seventeenth. So this guy rules. Wow. Happy birthday, Stephen E. D'Souza. <laughs> yeah, dude. Good job. Um, I think the trickiest part of Gray in this movie is that he's gone for a lot of the first half. Like, we meet him at the very beginning yeah. of, of the film because he's interviewing that one Supreme Court justice that gets killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we don't see him for a while. But then when we do, it's like, oh boy, this guy is our, you know, all all the president's men guy in this Mm-hmm. I told you that I was like I was like oh the boy work. it definitely like I kept forgetting like that he was a good journalist so I was like this guy seems like he's got he like he's got some secret connections I don't know he just seems so I, I just think of what like, a journalist is today I don't know he just seems uh, he's like on some other level or something yeah he's putting in the work he's risking his life spying on people with his camera i guess that's it it's it's the spy elements it's like he's really he puts his neck out for this work that's the job fucking things yeah not today man fucking things have changed um now now great grantham would have a podcast (laughs) (laughs) yeah well also he wouldn't be able to afford his sweet apartment in Washington DC either. No nah, man. The uh the other uh actor with a th- who will go on to additional legal uh film glory is <laughs> Julia Roberts. Uh Glory, <laughs> really? Right? Glory. Are you talking she about like Oscar. Aaron Brockovich? Aaron yeah. Brockovich, yeah. I just I was a little bit later. I, I don't know, it's funny. I just thought it was funny. Yeah. yeah. I'm <laughs> trying good. here, guys. <laughs> um, obviously, she had been in like Mystic Pizza and Pretty Woman. So she was a star, I guess. Of course. But... Pretty Woman made her a huge star. But did this make her a huger star? I feel like she's already huge. I don't think I made her a huge star but it definitely seems like she was like trying to see if she could do more serious dramatic films it, it kept the star uh, burning yeah because he had this she had sleeping with the enemy the year before so she was trying to like I'm serious now mm-hmm. what she's good at and she's yeah. still like incredibly young too she's like 25 when they make this movie well she's playing a, a college student even though that class it just felt like a high school class to me there's something that felt so informal about that class <laughs> well but that's yeah that's... My, <laughs> my my uh 
my partner, who's a lawyer, was watching the movie with me, and she was like, this is not how college or how law school <laughs> classes go at all. The teacher's not, like, asking questions. It's not like an open debate like this. Yeah, you got to so, learn your shit. Yeah. But my thing was, oh, no wonder she's acting all snarky in class because she's having sex with the professor. Yeah, well, of course she's. That guy's away gross. With this. That guy's the villain of the film. <laughs> Sam Shepard, because they said like he's Sam he's Shepherd. like done this before too. It's like his thing. Mm. Yeah, he's always yeah. sleeping with his students. He he deserves his fate. <laughs> deserves to get blown up. <laughs> and like it's the, it's such a cool car it's explosion cool. that they like cut back to it just so you can get a quick glance, glance at his charred corpse. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty sweet. Um, yeah. And, and it's got that thing where because she's the main character of the movie she goes from like a college student with an idea to like somehow someone who's on the, the same level as the world's greatest assassin when it comes to espionage. She falls into this role a little too easy of like, she yeah. knows how to work the game here. Like, I don't think the like one semester of law school she's had really prepared her for this. But I guess we don't know what her life was like before law school. So maybe Darby is just a badass. I love that name, by the way, Darby Shaw. Such a cool name. <laughs> um, so, yeah, well, we're getting to meet these two characters. We're also following uh, everyone's favorite, Stanley Tucci. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. He's sneaking his way into Washington, D.C. Um, and then doing some hits on two Supreme Court justices, uh, which, by the way, makes it look very easy I mean they're just doddering old men yeah there's yeah. Yeah, one who's just so old so old that I thought that they'd aged him up but I think Hume Cronin was just that old yeah, he looked like he was wearing he's, old man makeup he, yeah he looked like he's probably like 80 but they made him look yeah. like 180 <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like just like time or like why do you have to like shoot him too can you think of some yeah. other way to kill him I, I feel like he's like just, in like, like his him. deathbed yeah. yeah and I like how they got the other guy like fucking jerking off at a porn yeah. theater yeah. Because it's just like these fucking Washington types, they're fucking all such, such sleaze bags. Look at him watching his fucking porn peeweeing out here. Mm-hmm. Um, some nice commentary there. Some nice. It's powerful stuff. Yeah. Really I don't thoughtful. think this. I don't. This plan's weird to me. So, jumping way ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so the plan was by taking out these guys. He, they can try to get different judges in and push forward certain kinds of legislation that this guy wants. Yes. But, like, what if it doesn't go to the Supreme Court? What if it goes, like, some other circuit court judge or something? I just feel like so much has to go right in whatever you want to accomplish to get it to the so Supreme Court. If it doesn't... So if they win the case, it won't go to the Supreme Court. But if they lose the case, they'll appeal it to the Supreme Court. Okay. So, like, that's what they're counting on. Okay. Assassination it's, still seems like it's, quite... It's a contingency <laughs> plan. Yeah. It's also um, really interesting because they, they make a point of saying that um, 
the re like it's it's confusing to people why these two justices were targeted because it's like the most liberal and the most conservative justice uh, and then you find out later it's because they have uh similar they they have similar uh protections for the environment in their uh judicial history mm. it's like the one thing they have in common and that's the one thing julia roberts is able to to figure out it's the only thing they have in common is they both want to protect the environment but I feel like you could also just like, you know, just have more conservatives on the Supreme Court anyway, and they'll they'll just vote anti-environment and big business and pro-big business regardless. But yeah. I guess it makes it more interesting. You know, it's a book. It's, it's supposed to make you want to turn the pages. Yeah, I guess that is a good enough. Yeah, <laughs> I'm okay with it. Um. I mean, the whole thing probably falls apart if you think about it too much because, like, this is all him. Like, this is this billionaire investing all this money to drill for oil. Like, at, at a certain point, it's like, is it really a good return on your investment to be doing all this for just this one opportunity? <laughs> Killing, like, a lot of people. Yeah, like, some of the most powerful people in the country. Like, blackmailing the president. Um, I feel like Nina pointed out to us the other night that uh, mm-hmm. this this is all based on so like the the thing is that the Pelican brief they don't want to get out because it's Julia Roberts supposing that this is the case, but she doesn't have any evidence. So it's I I mean the most yeah. generous read on it is just that like oh because if it got out then additional like investigation would be done to find more evidence. But um, even when they introduce a like whistleblower later on, it really isn't like a compelling uh, case against the, the evil billionaire. Uh, and, and as we all know, even if there is a compelling case against an evil billionaire, that doesn't necessarily mean they would face legal consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, uh, just a huge overreaction by this guy. <laughs> but it got to take us on a fun adventure. A fun um, adventure, yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of people getting killed, starting with Sam Shepard, uh, with a sweet car bomb, which I really liked because then it set up future car bombs every time someone else started a car for the rest of the movie. And that's just exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably one of the best sequences in the movie is uh, Julie Roberts and Denzel Washington are in a car together with like all the evidence that they're going to get in the whole movie and he's like about to turn the key in the ignition and she keeps stopping him with like oh you got to see this it's great great stuff that's Pakula for you that's the I say that stuff. but honestly I watched three John Grisham movies and they all pretty much felt the same <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't. There's something about his style that seems so defined that you can just kind of plug in whoever. <laughs> but I will say, you know, the weird thing about um, Pelican Brief compared to the other two I watched, there is, and I don't know, maybe I just went in because I knew it was Pakula, but like it felt more '70s to me than the other ones, and I can't. I've been trying to put my finger on why that is. Um, I don't. When I think about like That's '90s thrillers, I always think about like 
like sneakers is about setting up a new world order or something. Whereas this feels, mm-hmm. I feel like you could have the same plot to like a seventies conspiracy movie. Yeah. Where ultimately it's just a bad man wants to make more money. It's and, not about, yeah. And cause of species of reshifting the world stage in some way. <laughs> yeah. It's not quite like a global thing. Not saying the other Grisham stuff is. I'm just saying about like '90s thrillers. I think about. <laughs> I mean, there's also something very '70s about there being like an evil, corrupt president, obviously, because <laughs> yeah. of Nixon. Um, which I feel like most '90s presidents are just like generic, generally nice, <laughs> middle-aged white men. Yeah, but it's also it's interesting because he's not like he's not like an outright evil president he's no, more of a like uh like conniving. we do favors for the people that give us money president which is probably extremely realistic they don't even yeah. say what party he is you just, you just gotta no. assume, just gotta assume. <laughs> by the way uh fun fact i always wonder about um like white house sets like how often they get reused <laughs> um mm-hmm. i know for this one that the white house sets they were using were sets created for dave Oh nice. hell yeah! Well, I wish Dave <laughs> was the president in this. Um, I don't know if they've gone on to be in other movies, but uh, these are Dave sets. I love in that. Falcon brief. So good. What was Dave the the year after though? No, Dave's also nineteen ninety three. Damn! What a fucking year for one of the greatest years of cinema perhaps <laughs> i mean for the 90s definitely like 93 and 94 those are probably the two best or 99 those are the three best yeah because they're fucking making movies for adults yeah and they were sometimes sexy <laughs> like the two little bit <laughs> in this yeah Tooch is real sexy it's crazy how stanley tucci even in like ridiculous disguise is like oh he's, he's making that work yeah. he'll be wearing like a jogging outfit and then have like a blonde toupee and like glasses i'm like yeah that's that he, he that works <laughs> i don't think there's uh, ever been a movie where he's looked bad yeah I mean, this era, of, this era, this type of Stanley Tucci kind of reminded me of like that early commercial where he's just like walking down the street and a wife beater looking hot. It's like for guest. Oh yeah, something. yeah. And I like that there is one scene where he's changing outfits and he he's, he's just in a wife beater. It's like oh, yeah, that's like that's the look. <laughs> little guest reference there. I like that. Yeah. But I was trying to think, like, is there any movie where I don't like? Even in like the Lovely Bones, where he's supposed to be like a child murderer. I'm like he's kind of looking like a he's kind of looking like a snack in that movie. I think you're wrong. Joe. I'll eat those bones. I'll eat all the bones. I think you're wrong on this one. I think he looks like a monster in that because no, I was looking at some pictures earlier today. I was like, I don't know. I kind of like it. Yeah, I I'm, I will not follow you down this road. Oh, you're no fun. <laughs> You did bring up Hunger Games, though. That was one where it's like, well, he looks good. I don't know. He looks sexy in that one. It's kind of an interesting look. He's great, though. And I guess can play any ethnicity. 
I guess. Yes. His, name's, his name's Kamel. They don't say where he's from, right? But it sounds Middle Eastern. Yeah. I'm not sure what they're going for. Uh, yeah. But he's scary, and he's hot, and he's good. Mm-hmm. And he wears a dumb hat, and he gets killed. Spoilers. I think it actually is a good hat, but, you know, each their own. I've never owned one of those that like that sort of like short baseball cap. Mm. I don't know how to describe that. It's just like not as tall. It's like more brim, less hat. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a visor that's been like given a little hat just to put together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dude. I, I was a little, I mean, that's one of the scenes that's really confusing when you, when you're going through it because he just gets uh, killed um, and I would say one of the one of the weaknesses of this film compared to the other Grishams I've seen is that at the end of the movie they have to bring in an FBI guy who's like, "Look, I know you've got some questions about some things that didn't make sense. Let me explain everything." You know, big info dump. They also, I th- I think, make the interesting choice to not reveal what the Pelican brief was for about half the movie. Um. I'm not sure that it really benefited from that. Except for it made yeah, me go, hey, what's in that yeah. fucking brief? I agree, because like, once they finally told me, like I could not retain it. They needed to really ram that home over and over again for me to retain what the fuck that title means, because I've already forgotten. <laughs> Can you, like, in like simple English Wikipedia style, explain it to me? Do you remember? Yeah, they... Uh, okay, so... Um, the bad guy is Matisse, Victor Matisse. Yeah. And he wants to drill for oil in Louisiana. And he applied for the rights to do that through his company. But a, like one guy, like one passionate guy sued to stop them from drilling. Um, and, uh, on environmental, on an environmental basis. And... He succeeded because they found that there is a species of pelicans that live on that land, that only live on that land. So if they drilled there, they would go extinct. And so that stopped Matisse from being able to drill for that precious black goop that we all love. Um, So um, he, he appealed that case. And he's going to keep appealing it up to the Supreme Court or until he wins, either way. Um, and so what the Pelican brief says is that these two Supreme Court justices that were assassinated are, would be the two linchpin justices that would vote against Matisse if, if and when Matisse makes it all the way to Supreme Court. Right. Um, and since that's the only thing they have in common, Darby proposes her hypothesis is that that's the reason why they were assassinated is because someone who wants a big environmental case to come to in front of this to come to the supreme court um wants wants the the environment to lose um how she knew exactly it was that case the matisse case and not some other billionaire with some other environmental beef is not explained. Um, and again, there's no like actual evidence. This is all just her saying, this makes sense. Um, but, you know, 
that's how people are with conspiracies. Yeah. You think the cover of the novel had a pelican on it? Great question. <laughs> I'm asking the hard questions did. on this podcast, Sean. If sure I know anything about '90s covers, it'll sure be. We could find this out. I mean, uh, I'm looking at a couple. Oh, glowing they're orange. going pretty light on the pelican. I'm not seeing mm. it anywhere. Oh man. Oh, there's the one, one of on, like a sunset. The one on Wikipedia yeah, is like the, the sunset. One on with, it's like where it's birds. like where they live. You can't really see them in that great of detail, which is no, disappointing. There's like, there's like four pelicans, though. Yeah, that's enough. There are pelicans. It's like the last shot of Jurassic Park, but with pelicans as <laughs> pterodactyls. I mean, those could be pterodactyls. Those could be pterodactyls. You never know. Maybe this is just picks up where Jurassic Park left off. Uh, yeah. Um, guys, is it time for John Hurd redemption? Um, redemption? Oh, because he really let us down in the last time he was we on the podcast. So much shit him. <laughs> last time we were down south with John Hoyard. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, John said he had resting adulterer face, <laughs> wasn't uh, was, I can't remember. Was was it a good chunk of this in Louisiana? Yeah, it was. I remember. Just like fat a, people. Yeah, there's a great scene where she's walking through um, like some sort of, uh, probably not Mardi Gras, but like some French Quarter like party. Yeah, and she's like shell shocked because Sam Shepard just got blown up, but everyone else is having like the greatest party of all time. It's a pretty <laughs> right. cool scene. Uh, Redemption, yeah, he's good in this. This is more like what he needs to be doing. This is so good. <laughs> it's just like a really pathetic guy. Yeah, dude. And then he gets killed. As he, as he should. As he should. He's such a pathetic bitch. <laughs> Resting adulterer face. Uh, we also had Tony Goldwyn as the conniving chief of staff, who's uh, on Matisse's payroll, I think. I feel like you're excited about Tony Goldwyn in this, John, for some uh, reason. Well, he's, he's the bad guy in Ghost, which I rewatched this year. Um, I just think Tony Goldwyn's underrated. He was always an Oppenheimer, remember? Yeah. He was the head of the little, like, the interrogation group in the small room. He's like, the senior member of that um yeah i just think he's over he's uh he's underrated and he's handsome and he doesn't get enough credit for being disney's tarzan <laughs> <laughs> i don't think a lot of people realize uh, that i was excited to see um the greatest asshole of the 80s william atherton show up in this you know, um, I remember you're... getting excited, and then I, I can't remember who he was now. Did he have facial hair? Because no, if he, he didn't, didn't, if he didn't, he's I no way I would have recognized him. Because he needs um, to have like a, he, a, a sleazy beard. He's just one of the other like uh, like president staff guys. Okay, but it's just good to see him. I really only know Ghostbusters and Die Hard. I don't know what the rest of his career was. Um, and I guess still is. He's still alive. Yep. You I'm bet your ass up. he's in the new Ghostbusters movie. Like the new new... Go oh my god. Frozen Empire. Walter Peck is back. 
You think he's gonna get like a standing ovation? He, from he you, deserves maybe. it. From he me. was defending the environment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it'll be a home. The only one who remembers. Or I'll, I'll, maybe I'll go to the theater, but I'll go in disguise. Mm-hmm. I don't want anyone to know that I'm seeing there. Having a great time at Frozen Empire. <laughs> wow, Walt. It's, that's like kind of pathetic, though, when a year in a franchise is like, well, who, who else could we possibly bring back? <laughs> like, who's not dead or has not already passed? I, oh, yeah, Walter Peck. really know who else you could do yeah dude uh kevin dunn i think is in ghostbusters 2 as a guy who predicts this bad shit's gonna go down in the movie (laughs) i think anybody remembers that he is in ghostbusters 2 other Uh, i didn't well he is and he's pretty good ghostbusters 2 underrated it's the Tony Goldwyn of Ghostbusters movies. Yeah, I would take that more seriously if you didn't say every Ghostbusters movie is underrated. I didn't say every Ghostbusters movie. The first one's not underrated. The first one's so overrated. Why are you still talking about Ghostbusters, Sean? Tell me about them Pelicans. I don't know. How about Cynthia Nixon being in this? That was a fun surprise for me. A little bit, yeah. Another law student. Yeah. Could this be canon with Sex in the City? Yeah, does that line up? Well, yeah, she's a lawyer on that show. Forgot. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. It's part of the Sex in the City universe. She had to change her name because she's in witness protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't see anything preventing it unless one of these handsome men in the cast later showed up on Sex and the City as a different character. Yeah, how much of Sex and the City, Colin, have you seen? How much of this can you confirm or deny? Whether, uh... Any of these actors, like, showed up? Like, how well do you know the show? Uh, not that well, but I don't remember any of these actors show. I mean, they're all just, like, old white men. Like, they're <laughs> not anybody that any okay. women on Sex and the City would date. <laughs> Somebody finally said it. Guys, does this movie have too many old white men for me to keep track of them? Yeah, but I mean, it does seem like an accurate depiction of who worked in government in the 90s. But yeah, it is a little hard to keep track of the characters because they all kind of look the same. (laughs) It's a problem. Yeah. I'm going through my notes, and they're just like, well, that was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. What's going on? That was boring. Keep, There's one part where keep I wrote, all this in, John. <laughs> There's one part where I wrote, John Hurt has a phone and likes to watch Regis and Kathy Lee in his bathroom. <laughs> so I guess there was a scene where John Hurt is talking on the phone and watching Regis and Kathy Lee in his bathroom. Mm-hmm. Also, as I mentioned, John Lithgow shows up as like the head editor or whatever of the newspaper that Denzel Washington works at. Mm-hmm. And he's he's wearing the shit out of those suspenders. <laughs> Being a real boss, man. I thought this was going to be a one-scene wonder. Like, I thought nice. that first scene, like, this is all we're going to get at Lithgow. So I was, it was actually yeah. a pleasant surprise that he kept showing up for the rest of the movie. Yeah, sticks around. They're buddies. <laughs> they have a rapport sort of. from Ricochet. Yeah. <laughs> You can't 
you know, you, you don't find chemistry like that every day. No, that's like finding a pubic hair in your teeth. <laughs> oh my fucking god. Yeah, it is. Ugh. Vile. guys know that when John Grisham wrote this he envisioned Julia Roberts would play the role of Darby Shaw really yeah uh-huh. no, but, uh, interesting you could do that sort of head casting when you're writing a book in six months you can just be like this should be oh her. man this it- is gonna what you just said is gonna line up so well with my next pick Ooh. wow if I remember it, <laughs> what about, you about, or, about or the connection? <laughs> if I remember, I'm gonna forget my pick. No, that that like people envisioning someone for a role like it's like it's gotta be this person. Okay, a huge clue. Don't try to guess it. Just think. Just if you guess it, guess it in your brain, not in okay. your mouth. <laughs> okay. Here, here are my last two notes that are interesting. Mm-hmm. Sure. One, I really like that Denzel Washington drew a flow chart connecting all the parties to each other at one part in the movie when they explain everything. There's like a there's a part where he's like, This guy paid, this guy paid, this guy paid the White House. It's all very clear, like well, this is the way the money goes. Yeah, that's just like thriller like espionage thriller one oh one. You gotta do it. Yeah, it's like look, we know you're not paying attention, so here's a picture of it. Here's a very simple chart so you can understand the plot. Um, and then I wrote I love that the movie has a platonic hug at the end instead of them hooking up oh, yeah. and then I looked up the book and it totally ends with them hooking up oh damn uh, it sounds like Denzel chooses to also go into witness protection with her in in the book I but I think this is more fun. How many John Grisham to... books end with yeah, somebody like going into witness protection? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I watched... And then, like, being in the Caribbean. Yeah, I watched another one that had witness protection in it. Mm-hmm. It's just the only way out. Uh, oh, and the only production note I had that we didn't talk about is this movie was filmed in sequence, and I don't know why they did that. Hmm. Wow. Maybe it's just so Pakula can keep track of what's going on. Maybe. He's getting a little old. I mean, I feel like they do go to a lot of different locations, and it's they don't really go back to the previous locations that much. Yeah. So it kind of makes sense. Moving. It is always interesting. When you, usually it seems like they do that for a deliberate reason, so mm-hmm. I wonder... Yeah, I mean, it's just it's hard to come up with much to say because overwhelmingly this movie was just like fine. It's too yeah. long, it's too <laughs> many old white dudes. Uh, but it's got a great core cast and yeah. a, a fun enough mystery that you're not really bored. It also, I think, <laughs> I also think it has the uh, the appeal that a lot of pick movies that we watch from the '90s have. Where it's just like, oh, it's fun to see a like mainstream studio movie like this because they just don't make them like this anymore. Yeah, uh, 
and that even elevates a movie that probably at the time was considered like just okay. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Definitely the lesser of the two uh, Grishams released in 93. And definitely the lesser of the two Denzel Washington legal movies released in 1993. <laughs> mm-hmm. Still a good, a decent hit though. Yeah. People loved it. It uh, made uh, just shy of $200 million at the box office. Uh, made for a budget of $45 million, which, like, like Colin was saying, like, there's no way that this script gets $45 million today. Um, I mean, would have to assume a lot of that just goes to the stars anyway. Yeah. Um, not a, a particularly strong reaction on the critical side either uh, although our boy roger ebert gave it three out of four oh. um it's actually down to 54 percent on rotten tomatoes which is uh rotten <laughs> <laughs> my bad you know what this needed now that i've seen three grishams okay um so it's definitely the least funny of the three not that any of them are like real knee slappers <laughs> But I think what makes some of those other ones funny is like the southern hospitality angle and then like a, a kooky southern character or two. That's something that I like. Like I love that Gary Busey is in the firm and he's insane. Yeah. And it's like I he's can't believe they lit him. So over the top. And it's like is he even reading from a script? <laughs> well, and also and also Holly Hunter like steals that movie. She's so good. Yeah, um, or like the client. It opens like the death of like the, some guy who talks like Foghorn Leghorn, and Tommy Lee Jones is you know, like so southern in it. And I'm like, this is really interesting. I love how Grisham like like he, this is where he's from. This is what he knows, and he still keeps this to the south. But it just doesn't have the same kind of like charm as those other two. It needs to be more southern, is what my note. Yeah. This feels too DC, even though it's like, yeah, like New Orleans and stuff. Yeah. God, now that I think of it, you're right. Like, everyone in the firm is, like, a really visually interesting person. Because you've got, like, Wilfred Brimley, you've got Tobin Bell and Paul Sorvino. Like, like even beyond their, their, like, interesting acting styles, they're just interesting guys to look at. Mm Mm-hmm. On like just the old whites. Yeah, and the client, the client has a lot of that too. And that one's fun too because the main character is a kid, so that's interesting. Um, Should I now? Should I continue my journey and watch A Time to Kill, y'all? Yeah, dude. Probably. A movie that somehow I feel like everyone has seen but me somehow. Yeah, we just watched it in school. What what class? Ooh, good question. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, was it government? I didn't take a law, didn't take a law <laughs> class in high school. I don't think it was the government class. It was like <sighs> history. I know it was, yeah, I mean, I know it was Mr. Johnson's class, and he taught English and history. <laughs> but it's like it doesn't really fit into either of those subjects. Not really, unless he's like. This is how you're going to learn about the history of racism in America. Is this movie from like yeah. ten years ago? 
I, I felt bad burning a Schumacher by watching on my own. I feel bad to watch another one on my own, but at the same time, I can still think of a bunch of other Schumachers that I'll I will pick someday. Mm-hmm. Maybe at the end of this podcast, you'll have to w- stick around to find out. Um, but Grisham, I'm, I'm I you know I've liked these enough to keep. I don't know if I'd ever, ever read any of his books, but um, mm-hmm. I'll certainly watch the movies. I'll keep going. I'll watch the Rainmaker. Or what was it called? The the Chamber or something? Would that get made into a movie? Yeah, it sure did. The Chamber starring, I want to say Chris O'Donnell and Gene Hackman again. Oh, the Hackman. Yeah. That, the Hackman being in The Firm was like a, such a surprise because I feel like he's not... Like, a name that big should be on the poster, but he must have been like a last-minute addition or something. Or I, I don't know because he just like pops in and then steals the movie whenever he's in, in it <laughs> he's got a movie called there's a john grisham uh, based on a manuscript by john grisham it's called the gingerbread man <laughs> is this like a, a serious version of the story kenneth Branagh is a divorced lawyer okay yeah that's enough i'm interested yeah also got robert downey jr robert duvall tom berenger do you know robert duvall got wilford brimley into acting I know. Not, not, I'm not. What? I'm kind of getting far off course here. <laughs> well, you mentioned happen? him early. They must have worked on something together. He's like, you should act. Uh, Wilford Brimley was just like, um, he was like a stunt man who would like would ride horses for westerns. He like just like a, he was like he's like a ranching background. He wasn't an actor until he's you know much older. And then I guess Duvall. I think it was Duvall. It's like you should you should you know you should act. And he's so good in the firm, which I am aware we're not talking about. I'm sorry. You should watch. I had a weird experience watching the firm where I remembered the middle of the movie from having watched it. I have no idea when, but the whole rest of the movie, I was convinced I'd never seen it before. So I think maybe I had just seen the middle of the movie on like TV or something at some point. I mean, all these Grisham uh, movies feel like this is what they show on TNT all the time. (laughs) I don't know. They just have that vibe of a movie you see on TV. What's the, like, what's the definitive movie that you see? Like not even on like Blu-ray DVD or in theaters. It's like, this is a, I see it on TV movie. I, I guess for my, our, our generation, because we're a little too young to see this in theaters. For me, Forrest Gump is like the ultimate you-watch-it-on-TV mm. movie. Yeah. Well, it's very episodic, too. So I think that's like it, yeah. One, one chunk of the movie and then just, like, turn it off. You're exactly right. Else. That's exactly why it makes it works. So you don't have to watch the whole thing. You can get watch like a little chunk. You watch an episode of Forrest Gump. Yeah. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. Yours, yours is better than mine. For me, when I think of like turning on TV and finding a movie and just watching a little bit of it and then going on my day, yeah, it's Saving Silverman. For some reason, <laughs> I felt like that was always on Comedy Central. I mean, I think anything you saw on Comedy Central is a good answer to this question because they would like fucking run these movies into the ground. They'd be like, "Okay, we're watching, we're showing Saving Silverman every day for six months." <laughs> Because I've definitely seen Saving Silverman more than once on TV. Yeah. It was just there. Or didn't you mention, like, uh, Back to School on our Back to School episode? You'd seen it on TV a couple times? Somebody did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. Same kind of same kind of situation, yeah. Um, God, what's the, what's the move? What's the dive from Back to School? Triple something. Oh, it's like Triple, triple Lindy. Lindy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
funniest thing ever put to film. Funniest thing ever. Uh, Pelican Brief could have used that. Needs a few more jokes. Pelican Brief could have used that. Uh, also, the uh, James Horner score was fine, but not memorable at all. Not like that kick-ass, like, all, like almost all piano score in The Firm. Yeah, very honky-tonky. Honky-tonky, but, like, it knows how, how to be scary with piano when yeah. it needs to be. Scary when Tom Cruise runs. Just like on the poster. Yeah, he does. I was like, for, I forgot. Oh. I was like, is he going to run in this? And then he runs near the end. I'm like, oh, my he God, runs he's running. so good. <laughs> I feel like um, there's a sweatiness to John Grisham stories that are, that's also absence from this. Like, if you watch A Time to Kill, you'd be like, this is a sweaty movie. And Tom Cruise gets pretty sweaty in The Firm. Yeah, like no, absolutely. I You're guess that's so part of right. like living in the South. Is it's a sweaty place. <laughs> yeah, they all got like sweaty guys. You got to see the client because it opens with this. I don't even know who the actor is. Some like uh, big gentleman who sets the plot into motion, and he's like so southern and so sweaty, and he's like just stuffed into a suit. He's like a sausage <laughs> bursting out of its casing. And like I don't know who this guy is, but what a find. <laughs> Did you see that um, Martin Scorsese quote about Brendan Fraser? No, I didn't. All right, give me one second because I want to get the words exactly right. I'm gonna try to find out who this uh, this tall drink of water was, <laughs> the client. Because like the the thing about these so all these Grishams, they always have like the most impressive cast. But I had no idea who this guy at the beginning of the movie was. Um. Okay, here's here's Martin Scorsese on Brendan Fraser. Really for us, when we heard that, he brought the whole scene down to Leo. It was perfect. And he had that girth. He's big in the frame at that time. He's a wonderful actor, and he's just great to work with. He had that girth. <laughs> Colin, you've seen Killers of the Flower <laughs> Moon. Do you appreciate the girth and the way that Scorsese shoots that girth? Yeah, I think so. Yes, yeah. he, he, he has a big presence in that scene, <laughs> both physically and and acting wise. Hell yeah, good for him. Going up against our man John Lithgow in court. <laughs> Seriously, yeah, like they're the opposing lawyers on like the murder <laughs> trial. <laughs> it's just can't escape Lithgow. It's pretty good. Yeah, another like late appearance in a film, also much like this movie. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, like, John sent us a picture. This is the guy from the, Walter Olkowitz, who's an actor I don't know, who is the guy who sets the the, the plot of the client to motion. Mm-hmm. He's the largest, most southern man I've ever seen. <laughs> He's yeah. great. Um, so that that that's one thing that I will like be thankful for about the Pelican Brief, even though it was kind of just whatever. It was fine. I'm glad that it it made me like. I see the appeal of Grisham now, and I'm interested in kind of exploring more of his like almost borderline southern gothic law but like they're but they're never at least in the ones i've seen they'll you always think they're gonna be courtroom movies but then they're more of just like thrillers that have the, the law around yeah yeah well is it time to kill a courtroom movie it's, yeah yeah it is. so that maybe that's yeah, the most the at least the most dramatics. of his yeah, now that I think of it, you might think it's kind of boring. Because there's not, like, a part where someone's, like, chasing someone with a gun. Well, there is, I, but it's... I didn't that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's more like 
terrifying more than like exciting. Okay, well I'm definitely gonna watch that next, but not on the pick. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah. You have any goofs? Sean? I should say I have a goof. Mm-hmm. It's that uh, Julia Roberts, who is an unmarried law student, uh, towards the end of the film is often seen wearing a wedding ring. Mm-hmm. That's actually Julia Roberts' real wedding ring. <laughs> yep. Yeah, whoops. Just a goof. Okay. Yeah, just a goof. Just a goof. She left it on. And uh, they didn't take it out. Those idiots. Ruins the movie. I wish I had a villain's wiki for this, but I don't. There isn't one. Yeah. It's too smart. I mean, we don't really. I mean, if you consider the villain to be. I guess Tony Goldwyn. Matisse. You don't really see him. Yeah, I guess you could say Tony Goldwyn. I don't know, Stanley Tucci, maybe he dies. Oh, maybe he has one. What was his name? Kamel? Kamel. Take a look. Kamel. Villains, Wiki, Pelican. Uh, no, man. (laughs) No. Well, I think that just means the last thing to do is to find out what our next pick is. Um... Okay, first let me see if it's still streaming because like I I keep thinking about how I always feel bad that I have to make people rent stuff all the time. So mm. it'd be nice if it was something that like, hey, you can just go on to. Well, actually, I don't know if Colin has this, so Colin might still be screwed over. Um, but no, we're uh, you know, we did Julia Roberts. I was like, maybe we should do another Julia Roberts. Maybe we should finally do Notting Hill. Oh. Notting Vember on the pod, if you will. Um, also, we've done this director before, same director of Changing Lades, the kind of work in a, in, yeah. a, in a different lane, uh, in, in a rom com. And as I, I was just looking him up, Roger Mitchell, because I was watching clips from uh, Tea with the Dames on YouTube. <laughs> what Tea with the Dames? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's that movie where. Uh, Dame Maggie Smith, Dame Judy Dench, Dame Eileen Atkins, and Dame Joan Plowright are like just like talking to each other. <laughs> Look, all we right. all spend our t- we're all mortal. No, we all spend I'm our not time surprised, Sean. Will. This extremely sounds like something you would watch. <laughs> you love watching cl- clips of British TV. Uh, yeah, no, no shame in that. <laughs> But, That's, I mean, crazy coincidence, though, because I was like, that was today. Yeah. Sure. But, like, you know, earlier we were talking about, like, how, you, you know, like, oh, this this person's got to play this part. And this yeah. was, like, a movie that was specifically written for Julia Roberts and no one else. Whoa. Because, uh, you know, the whole, the whole premise of Notting Hill is, like, what if a famous, like, actress just, like, fell in love with, like, some normal, not famous guy? Uh-huh. Another Richard Curtis. This is a Richard Curtis script. Another Richard Curtis wish fulfillment movie. Yeah, he's just uh-huh. writing like, "What if a famous actress fell in love with me?" <laughs> so I'm, I'm always interested because I kind of feel like most of Richard Curtis's work uh, is not holding up well. <laughs> yeah, I don't passes. even know. If, I don't even know if we would call ourselves fans, but we seem to like talking about him. We don't love actually. Yeah. Um. 
and I don't, I don't think we, I don't think we podcast about his other ones, but I've certainly talked quite a bit off pod about, uh, how, well, how much I fucking despise about time and, and hate the fact that it's, uh, so many dudes are like, I actually like really like that. Like my favorite rom-com is about time. I'm like, fuck you. I hate that movie. Uh, and then yesterday is like half good in my eyes. Yeah. Uh, looks like Richard Curtis just wrote a movie called Genie. <laughs> Are you fucking serious? Like, as <laughs> really just, <laughs> just leading into that wish fulfillment so hard. It looks like this one is at least a woman wishing for things. Uh, okay, uh, got him. A fairy tale comedy about a workaholic, uh, a workaholic man who enlists the help of a magical genie to help win his family back before Christmas. So it is about a man. Oh, See, it's yeah. confusing because the poster is Melissa McCarthy, but she must be the uh, the genie, I guess. The genie, I think. Yeah, she's got those magic uh, swishy lines around her. Uh, Papa Asidu <laughs> is the. Uh, is the uh, is the is the guy, and I, I know him from his small part in the movie Men. Okay, men as one of the men, but not one of the men. No, mm-hmm. I can't. The remember. Men are scary. Did you see Men, Sean? Yeah, he's like the man from the flashbacks. He's not one of the men. Oh, the flashback man. Yeah, like the husband. Maybe I should have picked... Uh, oh, is this going to be out? Should I have picked uh, GD? <laughs> it's coming oh, to Peacock. Man. It's coming out November 22nd. Uh, okay, that's this week. This has got to be... This is going to be, piece, well, this is gonna be a huge piece of do. shit. Okay, interesting. No. It's based on a television show written by Richard Curtis from the early 90s. The What the fuck? Or a television oh, special? Yeah. Television film. I'm very excited to. Uh, there's a good chance I'll have seen this by the time we do our Notting Hill <laughs> podcast, and I can tell you guys, it literally says on the poster from the writer of Love Actually and Notting Hill. <laughs> um. Anyway, look forward to our Notting Hill hot takes uh, in some amount of time in the future. Hopefully, uh, sooner than later. I gotta. We gotta do this so we don't forget these movies. Something we need to improve on. <laughs> Sean's doing Pelican yeah. Brief. Colin and I acted like we've never seen it because I just can't remember it. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Um, if you want to hear more thoughtful takes on movies than what you've just heard, uh, may I recommend you go over to mildlyplease.com where we have written reviews. Shocktober ended, well, I guess, a while ago. But <laughs> those those reviews didn't go away. There were some fun ones. I liked uh, hearing about uh, how the devil made Colin do things. <laughs> and uh, you can also listen to some of our older podcasts just by looking for Mildly Pleased on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever you um, you like, I think. I think, now, I think now it all works until we get banned from Spotify for too much copyrighted music. And... I guess we'll... Oh, here, I've got a little quote from the Pelican Brief for you. Here's Charlie Rose saying, You know that in view of all this, you know there's a lot of speculation that this podcast is a figment of your imagination, that you created it from a lot of different sources. Just as there are people who believe there was no deep throat, there are those who believe there is no the pick. 
In other words, it's just too good to be true. That's right. It almost is. Can't love you now.